Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod for the Planet. My name is Charles Olson. My name is Ramel Pacheco. And I'm Abby Beach. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about food security and urban and rural food issues in the United States. This is going to be the first part of a two-part series that we're doing about food. Um, so keep an eye out for that second episode. Uh, and let's get into it. tonight sure am oh yeah i am lit and this episode's coming out like a week from then so y'all will future us will know how wild they are so since this episode is dropping sunday night and we are currently recording this on wednesday uh the evening of the first democratic primary debate uh we will be recording another episode this weekend after the debates, where we will be dissecting all the fun shit that happens during them, hopefully. This is my Super Bowl. This is a March Madness for me. And then we will be dissecting what happens uh, and posting another episode next Wednesday uh, for your enjoyment. I think it's important that we start this off by talking about the situation that's going on at the border. Yeah, it's it's really bad. And it's also like the way people are talking about it is just kind of horrific, actually. I saw this meme where basically it's a Republican and he's like concerned about like the children or like the, a fetus that's inside a mother, but like not concerned about like the children that are in these basically concentration camps that are being taken away from their their mothers and a lot of them are like not being given proper nutrition or um or even living quarters um many of them toothbrushes um not blankets uh, i saw a picture where like uh, it's just a room packed full of children and all they have are like those aluminum like um emergency blanket blanket kind of things so yeah it's it's fucked <laughs> also fucked is like how angry the media and people got about the use of the word concentration camps as if that's like the worst offense is what we're calling it instead of just being like yeah this shit is fucked no matter what you call it everyone's arguing uh on both sides like about how aoc called the concentration camps and it's disgusting to me that this wasn't getting enough media attention this was barely like after it was first came out that these uh detention centers with children existed there was some media attention for that week but i mean there's been articles and stuff it just it did yeah, die down just it there wasn't like 
it's just disgusting to me that like the attention is back now and it's being put in the wrong place. And I think that after like all of this is said and done and our children and grandchildren are looking back in this time of history in textbooks that they will look at the people who are committing these atrocities, these gross mistreatment of children, babies, toddlers, and they will see, like, history... They're not going to give a shit about how we define them. Exactly. History is just not going to look kindly on these people. And that's also, like, this. we shouldn't be focusing our energy... Like, AOC, whether you disagree, whether the proper definition should be a concentration camp or not, like, she's... She wasn't, like... Her, she was just, like, making the statement that they're horrific, and, like, that's what the meat of this is, is, like, we need to do something about it, not, like, let's debate over whether that word was insensitive or not, because what's insensitive is the, like, treatment of these people. Like, they're human beings, and they're children, children humans, like... I, I saw that, like, a lot of the people who were stirring up this debate on, like, Twitter, uh, one, of the, one of those people was... Uh, Liz Cheney and she was saying that it's like it's like the, you shouldn't be using the terminology like concentration camp but she's like not an actual ally for like like I feel like a lot of people on the right are using this argument and they're using it for their benefit but they're not going to be the same people that stand up for actually protecting like they're not getting the point that like she's you like the brand of the Holocaust isn't something that needs to be defended. Like the Holocaust is, and concentration camps are like, as an idea, it's like we should look back at our history as a species and be like, we, there was part of our species that like fucked up and did gross things. And th- th- this, you shouldn't defend the terminology and say like, oh, this doesn't count. It's not the same. Like, like, it, that doesn't matter. What matters is that, like, this is distracting from the fact that these are kids. It, it, it's a situation that goes beyond, like, identity politics. It doesn't matter whether you're a conservative or, or a liberal. You know, there are children in they're our country that are kids. suffering. Yeah. It doesn't matter if they're, you know, here legally or illegal or, you know. Or that... Term they is are even dumb, but yeah. Children. <laughs> like a child isn't illegal. There's a great article um, from the Texas Tribune that has a list of organizations uh, that are mobilizing to help the influx of immigrants crossing the border, the southern border. Um, and uh, I highly recommend anybody that's listening uh, to please uh, look at this list and take the time to donate or offer your volunteer services as, if possible. Um, one of these organizations is called uh, uh, Race Rices. Uh, I believe I'm pronouncing that terribly, but they are an organization of lawyers that are working to uh, for free and reduced fees um, help the children at the border um, with the legal challenges that they're facing. So please check out their website. The link will be in the show notes. Um, 
and yeah. So food security, it's basically, you know, the access, um, it's basically the access to quality, nutritious food and fundament, the fundamental to human existence. And, um, it's not just the ability, it's not just having food in your country or your community, but it's also the ability to have, uh, the, the amount of, um, income that is necessary to be able to afford such nutritious food, right? And um, one of the central sustainability challenges of our time is how do we achieve food security, especially since our population is anticipated to exceed 9 billion by 2050. And basically, um, our world's food systems are failing. There's billions of people that don't have access to sufficient calories, and over 2 billion lack sufficient nutrients. And the problem is how do we continue having how do you how do we make a new sustainable food security system while also trying to min minimize the further environmental degradation that comes with agriculture pasture um grazing and whatnot what i think is kind of crazy about like food security and the massive amount of hunger that happens in the united states and around the world is that like we waste so much especially in the u.s um like we're throwing so much food out yeah but it's pretty insane because we waste like up to 40 percent of our food in this country and there's still so much hunger i posted an episode about my experience uh with food growing up uh in a an impoverished household uh so i will put the link to that in the show notes um yeah, I think it's important to realize that this is not just a global issue. This is an issue that affects millions of Americans. Um, and it is an issue that is uh, going to be made worse as climate change uh, accelerates and becomes worse. Uh, there's a startling fact that uh, the quote-unquote breadbaskets of the world are going to be moved um, as the climate shifts uh, and our f agricultural systems and food production systems are going to have to adjust with a change in climate, uh, not just globally, but here in the United States as well. Um, so this is very much an issue that affects and will be affecting more and more Americans every year. Oh, that reminds me of um, our, when in a previous episode with um, Lauren Eastwood that me and Charles did, I brought up um, <clears throat> some information that um, climate change is actually starting to affect the uh, the nutrients that are in <clears throat> in rice. And basically, um, area, uh, crops that were exposed to higher levels of CO2 were on average less nutritious. So for example, so rice um, in Southeast Asia, <clears throat> um, Rice was containing about 10% less protein, 8% less iron, and 5% less zinc than rice grown under like current levels of carbon dioxide in other areas that are not as being as affected um, from climate change. What I think is cool about this, though, despite like the doom and gloom of it all, is how booming the agricultural industry is right now. 
because there's a lot of like young people going into farming in a way that like there weren't before um and there's like a lot of really interesting science and you know sustainable practices that are being developed on like a more massive scale about half of the world's population is dependent upon rice as like their main source of food um so that it's really interesting to see that like as as a change like uh like the composition of the atmosphere happens over the next couple of years it's going to be affecting three and a half billion people it's just mind-numbing to me right and this is going to affect um you know, the prices of food, increased volatility of the prices. No, that's crazy. Because you, when you think about food security, I think you usually think about, like, pastures being wiped out or, like, wildfires and stuff like that. Um, but we don't really think about, like, the literal food composition being changed. Uh, I personally think about when, like, food security comes to mind, and I know I've brought this up already in previous episodes with Yurmel, um, my first thing that comes to mind is the way that it affects different economic classes differently. Um, food shortages, uh, the, when the, the quality of food deteriorates, um, it affects the poorest people first. It affects the poorest countries first. Um, and in the United States, uh, our agricultural sector is booming, but uh, at the cost of the fact that a lot of the farmers in our country are part of some of our poorest citizens and are not being given um, the assistance and are not, in some cases, not being given the tools to help them adapt with the changing climate and changing weather patterns. When I think of um, food security, I usually think of like other countries that are forced to basically either farm palm oil or um um cocoa beans or you know pasture or, or make make um clear forests for pastures for grazing cows and whatnot i think of that and how they're forced to do that instead of using that land to make food for themselves and they're basically stuck in, and it's and it's all because it's because of the economic system that we're in well, I, I think I, I think what you're getting at is the a little bit towards the green revolution, um, and uh, what was in the 80s and 90s um, as like uh, global capitalism expanded, uh, there was more of an emphasis on producing cash crops uh, in a lot of countries uh, as like countries were brought into the larger economic fold, um, and those. Like the introduction of those cash crops, like you said, coffee, uh, tea, bananas, soy, um, cattle production, uh, palm oil, those obliterated uh, local agricultural traditions where most people were farming uh, for sustenance to sustain themselves and their families uh and then if they had any leftover if they had any surplus uh, they would then bring it to local markets um i think we see a little bit in some parts of the united states um ironically enough a shift in the opposite direction um at least talk like talking from the experience that we have up in plattsburgh or mill 
uh, I know that there's a lot of local farms uh, and a lot of people are interested now in the more organic, locally sourced produce, locally sourced food, locally sourced meats. Um, It's kind of wild how it's as now almost a quarter of the way into the 21st century, we're starting to see in the United States that there's a bit of a reversal at home while there's like a continued growth of decentralized agriculture. Yeah, that is interesting. I think about, to like go off that, I always think about like quinoa with that. That's like one of those crops, and I'm sure we'll get into this with diet, but like we in the United States, like mostly white people who like, you know, are into health and whatever, like that's one of those foods that we like. Um, But it also has like completely demolished the populations of farmers who are forced to not like pretty much forced to work on those um, crops. You know, this this also brings up uh, food security versus food sovereignty. And the differing, what differs from um, food security is that food sovereignty is like the right of the peoples and the communities and these countries to define their own agricultural, their labor, fishing and food and land policies. And basically, you know, means that all people have the right to safe, nutritious food in their own communities to sustain themselves and their societies. And um, and instead of a food security, food sovereignty, it embeds this like larger question of social justice and the rights of farmers and even especially indigenous communities to, to control their own futures and make their own decisions. There's a really great video. I think I brought it up in the last episode uh, about uh, communities in and around Detroit that are utilizing their like urban green spaces to have like local farms and stuff. Um, so I, I think that's one interesting aspect of it. Um, another thing is the relationship that we have with our food now and food sovereignty. So like farmers in the United States, like like in our system currently, like most farmers are like part of the industrial agriculture system. So it's like they produce, like there's like chicken farmers, there's cattle ranchers, like there's like each farmer has like a, like a crop, like their particular crop. Um, and they're kind of, I've seen videos where these farmers are like bound to their land and they're like bound to these corporations that have contracts where they're stuck doing the same thing for years and they have no ability to get out of that. Um, I think that uh, that's an important thing that we should be considering when we're buying food. Like when we go to the grocery store, like what is the human impact not just like climate and environmental but like whose life went into making that food and like like i feel like there should be some consciousness to that um but i i realize as i say that that the ability to have that consciousness and to like 
make those choices on where we get our food from is coming from a place of privilege and is coming from somewhere where it's like, I'm not, I don't live in a food desert. Like I'm not worried about simply getting the food. Like I, like I have the ability to like go to a variety of grocery stores in my area currently because there's like a couple of grocery stores close by. I can like choose where I get my food from. I can go to the giant or I could go to the Whole Foods. Like it's, I have the benefit of choice, but it's like if we were, if I was back in North Belport, I'd be considerably farther away from a near the nearest grocery store. And if I was in the economic situation I was in, in my childhood, like I wouldn't be able to have the luxury to think about like, oh, where am I getting this chicken from? I'm thinking about how am I going to make sure my kids are eating this week? Like, so there's a lot of, com- there's a lot of complexity to it. Yeah, there's de- that's definitely the reality for like a lot of people in America. And I think that's not to put that on the people necessarily, like the people who are in those situations, but those who do have like the options to choose, I mean, you should go for the better option and then we need to systematically make those better options affordable, feasible, within reach um, to those who may not, like, have access to them. And it also goes, you know, goes back to, you know, um, being able to purchase better quality food. And many communities don't have that chance either because a supermarket is is either farther to them or because they're so busy that they would rather, you know, buy the $2 cheeseburger at McDonald's because, you know, it's cheaper, it's fast, it's quick, instead of preparing a meal, which is, you know, usually healthier. But if you're working three jobs, like, that's not really what you're worried about. We've kind of brought this up already, uh, regional differences in the United States. So we talked when introducing the topic for this episode about urban food security and rural food issues. Um, So let's start by talking about urban food security, which we've already talked a little bit more about. So we just have to fill in a little bit of the blanks. I grew up in an area that was mostly a suburb and my relationship with food, as I've talked about in a previous episode, is like I grew up in a not a food desert, but it was definitely like a food grassland or like and like a prairie where there was like minimal food options but there were a few um and now living in northwest dc i have a like plentiful like many 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 food options i know a lot of urban areas there's a problem where uh most 
large grocery stores uh, are pretty far and few between, uh, and there's a lot more fast food options. There are McDonald's. There's, uh, you know, the, the whole gambit of fast food options almost on every corner. Um, and then there's a whole lot of convenience stores and groceries. Um, from your from like an urban planning perspective do you think there's like any way to make urban areas a bit more food accessible to make them instead of a food desert to make like healthy options a bit more plentiful currently there's a plan to build a new subway line that connects like the bronx through queens because usually you'd have to take a train that goes into Manhattan and then, you know, take a connecting train to Queens and just like ignoring like it going into Queens, um, just the line that where it goes, I, I haven't looked at the actual plan, but uh, the streets that it will go through, but I've seen, you know, the rough like outline of like where it'll be going through, but basically having a new, um, <clears throat> having that new train system, would you know it would, op it would open a lot more opportunities not just for um having access to more you know um s supermarkets or places that do sell food um also community gardens um i see a, i see a lot of those in um in manhattan or um rooftop gardens and that gives some freedom to um, fresher produce since um, you could grow it yourself. And you and uh, there's there's the idea that you know where you are growing the food, so you know that it's like clean and fresh. You you brought up the whole subway line coming in, and you've seen it. I I've seen it with uh, in Washington D.C. that when you build, uh, like transit lines and when you build like transportation uh, accessibility to new areas uh like the hubs like stations become like businesses and real estate around those areas uh tend to grow and tend to develop a bit more um so that yeah that, that's definitely interesting and something to keep an eye on moving forward for the bronx um switching gears now over to rural food security issues, the first thing that comes to my mind uh, is the prevalence and the growth of Dollar General. Um, and I, I'm talking about food security, and we I brought up the term food desert earlier, uh, and uh, this is when it really, really, really starts to feel like a desert, like the driest of deserts. Um, so basically what's happening is in rural America, um, think middle America where a lot of the food and a lot of our agricultural productivity is actually happening. Um, there is a lack of grocery stores and there's a lack of food systems in these areas, um, which is terrible because a lot of the farmers, uh, and the people that are living in these areas, um, are, are dependent upon outside food sources since they're only producing one crop. They're only producing one thing. Um, and the 
store chain, Dollar General, uh, has been building more and more of their stores in these remote rural areas uh, because they have the infrastructure. Uh, they are able to operate these stores very efficiently and cheap, um, and they don't have fresh food. They have canned food, frozen food, um, and foods that are high in caloric value, but not high in nutritional value. Um, so it's become a real issue where instead of a grocery store with a lot of produce and a lot of fresh local food, uh, the Dollar General is coming to town um, and oftentimes actually putting local markets out of business because people are who are economically disadvantaged because they live in these remote areas um, are being forced to shop at the Dollar General because it ends up being the cheaper the cheaper store in town. Um, so I, I think that's a an interesting dynamic that's happening in middle and rural America. Um, I've seen this in upstate New York. Or how like, you know, there's a Walmart in Plattsburgh, everyone goes there, but exactly. You know, they don't go downtown to, sh- to the shop co-op. at the co-op, yeah. which, you know, it it is it is pricey. But I feel like, you know, if that Walmart wasn't there and more people went to the co-op, then... No, I, I, I completely agree. Um, in, the, in the Catskills, which is uh, economically a uh, uh, so-so area, um, there's, uh, Stan- there's a town, Stanford... Um, and there's they they have a tops in the town, but um, the parking lot of the tops is almost I've only seen it one third full um, max. Uh, and there's a Dollar General at the excuse me just down the road that uh, the parking lot's always full, and uh, I've seen always seen people shopping there. Um, and I think it's interesting to see that in these areas, there are these dynamics where there are these stores like this. Um, it, it's interesting. Uh, and I think it's something that needs to be addressed that our farmers and rural Americans uh, are not um, are, are producing a lot of the food for us that we eat in, um, out on the coasts here, um, but they are not receiving uh, that much of a bountiful harvest from their labor, for lack of a better way to put it. The meat industry. What do you mean when you say the meat industry? Do you Are, are we talking chicken? Are we talking beef? Are we talking a broad, general... Well, I was taught. Well, when when I when I did say when I put when I did ugh, when I said meat industry in the dock, I I was mostly thinking of beef and the amount of land that's deforested to make room for cows to be pastured, and the fact that a lot of that land could be turned into subsistence farming for communities that are basically ruining their land to raise meat and to sell it to another country because meant because um meat is 
meat has a lot of calories in it and usually when there's a lot of calories in in a food stuff it costs more and these meat is basically considered a food for people with more income and the people that are pasturizing or pasturing the, and raising the cattle can't actually afford to have that meat to have that protein that they need i think this is like a great example of how talk like going back to like global capitalism um like the american diet and how it is tagged on to that expansion of global capitalism um and people are now like people in most countries are like looking to eat how Americans have eaten over the past 50 to 60 years. Um, and you said you brought up deforestation. And one of my first thoughts is in South America, how the Amazon's being deforested for uh, cattle production, but it's also soy production and all these uh, super land intensive um industries uh, and these crops um, are affecting uh, are creating massive amounts of change for our environment the Amazon is one of the it's considered like the lungs of the planet or or, or palm oil which is actually like the most profitable like use of land since companies make so much money yeah yeah they make so much money from palm oil which you know you can't you can't ha- there's no there's no nutritional like you know you can't eat palm oil for like a dinner so a lot of the a lot of times people that are um growing palm oil um palm the um, <clears throat> wait palm wait what palm oil comes from a Tree. tree yeah so there, tree okay there, i've seen videos where the about the palm industry um and they're so it's like they what they do is they clear cut and they do slash and burn to massive forests in indonesia um and then they create these palm plantations where they, with these palm trees um and that they are just gonna end up cutting down for the palm oil um and they just keep doing this um uh, there, there's tons of videos of massive, massive, massive uh, forest fires um, in Indonesia that have affected the air quality in some Indonesian cities. Um, uh, and that's a, I feel like that's a whole other issue that I don't think we quite really have the time to address in this episode. Um, like the ethics behind agricultural practices uh, in certain parts of the world. Um, so getting back to food security, though, you were saying before that, uh, the people who are growing these crops, who are are drastically changing their land to grow these crops, um, or to raise these, the, these livestock, um, these are not the people that are benefiting from this. And... I think that should be like a, a a real main takeaway here is that uh, the food security issue in the United States and globally isn't an issue so much of production 
because we produce a lot of food um, globally. It's just that the way that the food is produced is unequal, and the way that the food is distributed is unequal. Right. It's it's also it's it's also like extremely political. Also, that too. It's it's a logistical systemic problem. Yeah. Um. Uh, there's these um. There's these surveys on like groups of refugees from my um, migrants from uh, East Africa, West Africa, Asia, and the Middle East that are like currently living in camps in Greece and Italy and uh, Turkey. And basically, they found that the countries with the highest level of food security had the highest level of outward migration of refugees. Had the highest level of food security or food insecurity? Insecurity. Oh, okay, okay. So the so like the main reason, one of the main reasons they are leaving their country is because, because they there's a lack of food. Yeah, and also um, what it's something um and it, um when coupled with poverty, like food insecurity increases with the likelihood of like intensity of like armed conflicts and it's yeah it's it's fucked like one one thing affects another there the whole thing like food security in the united states and globally is a highly it is is rooted so deeply in our economic and political and social systems like food is a deeply cultural deeply like like we all eat so it's so deeply connected to like human identity that it's in such an important issue um and and i think in order for us to acknowledge the environmental connections that our food has and like the way we acquire our food and the way we the things we eat um which we'll get into more in the upcoming episode uh on diets uh and the environmental connections that certain diets have um i think we need to acknowledge that cultural and the social and the economic and political connections that our food has uh, and just be a bit more aware of all of the complex um, all, all the complexity that comes along with the fact with going to the grocery store and being able to pick up a, a bag of apples or being able to buy a box of pasta for 89 cents you know it's just you know when when you buy when you buy that produce it's like or you know what when you buy like that nutella it's like the palm oil that was used in the nutella is probably from somewhere in south america where oh where um it was where it was grown where that land could have been used to support a community but instead it's being used to create palm oil so it can make your Nutella. And then there's, you know, the transportation. We might have to do a three-part series. A three-part series. But basically, the amount of energy... Oh, it was a book that I read called The Energy of Slaves. I'll put, you know, the link, link, link that in. And basically, it was about how dependent we are on fossil fuels. And it basically said how the amount of energy that we put into making food which is um 
which is a number of factors, including, you know, transporting the food, um, using oil, yeah, raw materials, using oil to power tractors and other mechanized um, um, things that are involved in producing food. More energy is being put in, into food than we are getting out of it through the calories. That's ridiculous. We're, you know what? We're going to have to do a whole nother episode on that, on the, on the energy and environmental impacts of food in general. Um, sounds, I guess this is becoming a three-part series. Oh, shit. When we talk about food... Uh, and all the complexity that goes along with it, should we be putting an emphasis on the consumer, on the general person, on the on the everyday Joe? Should we put be putting the emphasis on the normal person to change their habits, to change something about them, or should we be focusing more on big? deep systemic change. I know that that there's middle ground there and that both things are necessary, but I think that's an important question that needs to be remembered with all of the discussions that we have about food and about environmental things moving forward. Not to answer that question, but just like on on the side of like, do we have to change our own habits? There, there's a lot of stuff that, like, we don't need, like, that's in, that's in supermarkets. Like, yeah, like, I, I don't need Nutella. <laughs> Nutella's good, but if I know that, you know, there are certain ingredients in it that are causing systematic, like, fuck shit then yeah, yeah damage, it, it, then it's that fuck shit i'm gonna be like i don't i don't need that i think that's a great response to that do we want to have to deal with more pain and more trouble later by not dealing with our problems today or do we want to just deal with the problems now and change a little bit at a time now Thank you for potting with me tonight. It's always a pleasure, Charles. Uh, thank you, the listener, for listening to another episode of Pod for the Planet. Please comment and let us know how we're doing. Uh, we're still playing around with this new formatting and stuff. We're just trying to figure things out as we go. Uh, and we're hoping to find out what works best for you, the listener. So please let us know what you think. As always, please subscribe. Uh, and drop a like on whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Uh, and please share us with your friends uh, and your coworkers and anybody you think would be interested in environmental things or political things or just hearing people talk. Uh, if you have an idea for a future episode or if you're interested in talking with us about something you heard in this episode, uh, you can reach out to us on our new Twitter and Instagram accounts at Pod for the Planet. That's the number four, uh, and those are being run by Abby. So, thank you again for listening to Pod for the Planet. Have a good day.